Chapter Two of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The Valet, the Townspeople, the Proclamation. The personage who entered the room, which on that, the first actual day after his arrival at his own dwelling, the Count de Morsay had used as a dining room, was the representative of an extinct race, combining in his own person all the faults and absurdities with all the talents and even virtues which were sometimes mingled together in that strange composition, the old French valet. It is a creature that we find recorded in the pages of many an antique play, now either banished altogether from the stage or very seldom acted. But alas, the being itself is extinct, and even were we to find a fossil specimen in some unexplored bed of blue clay, we should gain but a very inadequate idea of all its various properties and movements. We have still the roguish valet in sad abundance, a sort of common house-rat, but we have, moreover, the sly and the silent, the loquacious and the lying, the pilfering and the impudent valet, with a thousand other varieties. But the old French valet, that mithridatic compound of many curious essences, is no longer upon the earth, having gone absolutely out of date, and being at the same period with his famous contemporary, Le Marquis. At the time we speak of, however, the French valet was in full perfection, and, as we have said, an epitome of the whole race and class was to be found in Maître Jérôme Riquet, who now entered the room, and advanced with an operatic step towards his lord. He was a man perhaps of forty years of age, which, as experience and constant practice were absolute requisites in his profession, was a great advantage to him, for he had lost not one particle of the activity of youth, seeming to possess either a power of ubiquity or a rapidity of locomotion, which rendered applicable to him the famous description of the bird which flew so fast as to be in two places at once. Quicksilver, or a lover's hours of happiness, a swallow, or the wind, were as nothing when compared to his rapidity, and it is also to be remarked that the rapidity of the mind went hand in hand with the rapidity of the body, enabling him to comprehend his master's orders before they were spoken, to answer a question before it was asked, and to determine with unerring sagacity by a single glance whether it would be most for his interests or his purposes to understand or misunderstand the coming words before they were pronounced. Riquet was slightly made, though by no means fulfilling the immortal caricature of the gates of Calais, but when dressed in his own appropriate costume, he contrived to make himself look more meagre than he really was, perhaps with a view of rendering his person less recognisable, when, dressed in a suit of his master's clothes, with sundry additions and ornaments of his own device, he appeared enlarged with false calves to his legs, and manifold paddings on his breast and shoulders, enacting with great success the part of the Marquis of Kerousac, or of any other place which he chose to raise into the dignity of a marquisate, for his own especial use. His features, it is true, were so peculiar in their cast and expression, that it would have seemed at first sight utterly impossible for the face of Jérôme Riquet to be taken for any other thing upon the earth than the face of Jérôme Riquet. The figure thereof was long, and the jaws of the form called lantern, with high cheekbones and a forehead so covered with protuberances that it seemed made on purpose for the demonstration of phrenology. Along his forehead 
in almost a straight line drawn from a point immediately between the eyes, at a very large acute angle towards the zenith, were a pair of eyebrows strongly marked throughout their whole course, but decorated by an obtrusive tuft near the nose, from which tuft now stuck out several long grey bristles. The eyes themselves were sharp, small, and brilliant, but being under the especial protection of the superincumbent eyebrows, they followed the same line, leaving a long, lean cheek on either side, only relieved by a congregation of radiating wrinkles at the corners of the eyelids. The mouth was as wide as any man could well desire for the ordinary purposes of life, and it was low down, too, in the face, leaving plenty of room for the nose above, which was as peculiar in its construction as any that ever was brought from the promontory of noses. It was neither the Judaical hook-nose, nor the pure aquiline, nor the semi-Judaical Italian, nor the vulture, nor the sheep, nor the horse-nose. It had no affinity whatever to the Negru Truce, nor was it the bottle, nor the ace of clubs. It was a nose sui genis, and starting from between the two bushy eyebrows, it made its way out with a slight parabolic curve downwards till it had reached about the distance of an inch and a half from the fundamental base line of the face having attained that elevation it came to a sharp abrupt point through the thin skin of which the white gristle seemed inclined to force its way and then suddenly dropping a perpendicular it joined itself on to the lower part of the face at a right angle with the upper lip with the extensive territories of which it did not interfere in the slightest degree, being, as it were, a thing apart, while the nostrils started up again, running in the same line as the eyes and eyebrows. Such impersonal appearance was Jérôme Riquet, and his mental conformation was not at all less singular. Of this mental conformation we shall have to give some illustrations hereafter, but yet to deal fairly by him we must afford some sketch of his inner man in juxtaposition with his corporeal qualities. In the first place, without the reality of being a coward, he affected cowardice as a very convenient reputation, which might be serviceable on many occasions and could be shaken off whenever he thought fit. A brave man, he said, has something to keep up, he must never be cowardly, but a poltroon can be a brave man without derogating from the well-earned reputation whenever he pleases. No, no, I like variety. I'll be a coward and a brave man only when it suits me. He sometimes indeed nearly betrayed himself by burlesquing fear, especially when any raw soldier was near, for he had an invincible inclination to amuse himself with the weaknesses of others, and knew how contagious a disease fear is. The next remarkable trait in his character was a mixture of honesty and roguery, which left him many doubts in his own mind as to whether he was by nature a knave or a simpleton. He would pilfer from his master anything he could lay his hands upon, if he thought his master did not really want it. But had that master fallen into difficulties or dangers, he would have given him his last louis, or laid down his life to save him. He would pick the locks of a cabinet to see what it contained, and ingeniously turn the best folded letter inside out to read the contents, but no power on earth could ever have made him divulge to others that which he practised such unjustifiable means to learn. He was also a most determined liar, both by habit and inclination. He preferred it, he said, to truth. It evinced greater powers of the human mind. 
Telling truth, he said, only required the use of one's tongue and one's memory. But to lie, and to lie well, demanded imagination, judgment, courage, and, in short, all the higher qualities of the human intellect. He could sometimes, however, tell the truth, when he saw that it was absolutely necessary. All that he had was a disposition to falsehood, controllable under particular circumstances, but always returning when those circumstances were removed. As to the religion of Maître Jérôme Riquet, the less that is said upon the matter, the better for the honour of that individual. He had but one sense of religion, indeed, and his definition of religion will give that sense its clearest exposition. In explaining his views one day on the subject to a fellow valet, he was known to declare that religion consisted in expressing those opinions concerning what was within a man's body and what was to become of it after death, which were most likely to be beneficial to that body in the circumstances in which it was placed. Now, to say the truth, in order to act in accordance with this definition, Maître Jérôme had a difficult part to perform. His parents and relations were all Catholics, and having been introduced at an early age into the house of a Huguenot nobleman, and attached for many years to the person of his son, with only one other Catholic in the household, it would seem to have been the natural course of policy for the valet, under his liberal view of things, to abandon Catholicism and betake himself to the pleasant heresy of his masters. But Riquet had a more extensive conception of things than that. He saw and knew that Catholicism was the great predominant religion of the country. He knew that it was the predominant religion of the court also, and he had a sort of instinctive foresight from the beginning of the persecutions and severities, the dark clouds of which were now gathering fast around the Huguenots, and were likely sooner or later to overwhelm them. Now, like the famous Erasmus, Jérôme Riquet had no will to be made a martyr of, and though he could live very comfortable in a Huguenot family and attach himself to its lords, he did not think it at all necessary to attach himself to its religion also, but, on the contrary, went to Mass when he had nothing else to do, confessed what sins he thought fit to acknowledge, or to invent, once every four or five years, swore that he performed all the penances assigned to him, and tormented the Protestant maidservants of the chateau by vowing that they were all destined to eternal condemnation, that there was not a nook in purgatory hot enough to bake away their sins, and that a place was reserved for them in the bottomless pit itself, with Arians and Socinians, and all the heretics and heresiarchs from the beginning of the world. After having given way to one of these tirades, he would generally burst into a loud fit of laughter at the absurdity of all religious contentions, and run away, leaving his fellow-servants with a full conviction that he had no religion at all. He dared not, it is true, indulge in such licenses towards his master, but he very well knew that the young Count was not a bigot himself, and would not by any means think that he served him better if he changed his religion. In times of persecution and danger, indeed, the Count might have imagined that there was a risk of a very zealous Catholic being induced to injure or betray his Protestant lord, but the Count well knew Jerome to be anything but a zealous Catholic, and he had not the slightest fear that any hatred of Protestantism or love for the Church of Rome would ever induce the worthy valet to do anything against the lord to whom he had attached himself. Such, then, was Jérôme Riquet, and we shall pause no longer upon his other characteristic qualities than to say 
that he was the exemplification of the word clever, that there was scarcely anything to which he could not turn his hand, and that though light and lying and pilfering and impudent beyond all impudence, he was capable of strong attachments and warm affections, and if we may use a very colloquial expression to characterise his proceedings, there was fully as much fun as malice in his roguery. A love of adventure and of jest was his predominant passion, and although all the good things and consolations of this life by no means came amiss to him, yet in the illegitimate means which he took to acquire them, he found a greater pleasure than even in their enjoyment when obtained. When the door opened, as we have said, and Riquet presented himself, the eyes of the Count de Mosset fixed upon him at once, and he immediately gathered from the ludicrous expression of fear which the valet had contrived to throw into his face, that something of a serious nature had really happened in the town, though he doubted not that it was by no means sufficient to cause the astonishment and terror which Jérôme affected. Before he could ask any questions, however, Jérôme, advancing with the step of a ballet-master, cast himself on one knee at the Count's feet, exclaiming, "'My lord, I come to you for protection and for safety.' "'Why, what is the matter, Jérôme?' exclaimed the Count. "'What rogue's trick have you been playing now?' "'Is it a cudgel or the gallows that you feel?' "'Neither, my good lord,' replied Jérôme. "'But it is the faggot and the stake. "'I fear the rage of your excited and insubordinate people in the town of Mosseuil, "'who are now in a state of heretical insurrection, "'tearing down the king's proclamations, "'trampling his edicts underfoot, and insulting his officers. "'And, as I happen, I believe, to be the only Catholic in the place, "'I run the risk of being one of the first to be sacrificed.' if their insane vehemence leads them into further acts of frenzy. "'Get up, fool, get up!' cried the Count, shaking him off as he clung to his knee. "'Tell me, if you can speak truth and common sense, what is it you mean, and what has occasioned all these shouts that we heard just now?' "'I mean, my lord,' said Riquet, starting up and putting himself in an attitude. "'I mean all that I say. There is some proclamation.' he continued in a more natural tone, concerning the performance of the true Catholic and apostolic religion, which some of the king's officers posted up on the gate at the bottom of the Count's street, and which the people instantly tore down. The huissier and the rest were proceeding up the street to read the edict in the great square, amidst the shouts and imprecations of the vulgar. But I saw them gathering together stones and bringing out cudgels which showed me that harder arguments were about to be used than words, and as there is no knowing where such matters may end, I made haste to take care of my own poor innocent skin, and lay myself at your feet, humbly craving your protection. "'Then get out of my way,' said the Count, putting him on one side, and moving towards the door. "'Louis, we must go and see after this. This is some new attack upon us poor Huguenots, some other jesuitical infraction on the privileges assured to us by our good king henry the fourth we must quiet the people however and see what the offence is though god help us he added with a sigh since the parliaments have succumbed there is no legal means left us of obtaining redress some day or other these bad advisers of our noble and magnificent monarch will drive the protestant part of his people into madness or compel them to raise the standard of revolt against him or to fly to other lands, and seek the exercise of their religion unoppressed. "'Hush, hush, hush, Morsay,' said his companion, laying his hand kindly on his arm. 
Your words are hasty. You do not know how small a matter constitutes treason nowadays, or how easy is the passage to the Bastille. Oh, I know, I know quite well, replied the Count, and that many a faithful and loyal subject who has served his king and country well has found his way there before me. I love and admire my king. I will serve him with my whole soul and the last drop of my blood, and all I claim in return is that liberty of my own free thoughts which no man can take from me. Chains cannot bind that down, Bastilles cannot shut it in, and every attempt to crush it is but an effort of tyranny both impotent and cruel. However, we must calm the people. Where is my hat, knave? I have often wished, my dear Mosseux, said the chevalier as they followed the valet, who ran on to get the Count's hat. I have often wished that you would give yourself a little time to think and to examine. I am very sure that if you did, you would follow the example of the greatest man of modern times, abjure your religious errors, and gain the high station and renown which you so well deserve. "'What do you mean, Turenne? exclaimed the Count. "'Never, Louis, never. I grant him, Louis, to have been one of the greatest men of this, or perhaps of any other age, mighty as a warrior, just, clear-sighted, kind-hearted, and comprehensive as a politician, and perhaps as great in the noble and honest simplicity of his nature as in any other point of view. I grant him all and everything that you could say in his favour. I grant everything that his most enthusiastic admirers can assert. But God forbid that we should ever imitate the weakness of a great man's life. No, no, Chevalier, it is one of the most perverted uses of example to justify wrong because the good have been tempted to commit it. No man's example, no man's opinion to me is worth anything. However good or however wise he may be, if there be stamped upon his face the broad and unequivocal marks of wrong. By this time they had reached the vestibule from which a little flight of steps conducted into the garden, and Maître Jérôme stood there with his lord's hat and polished cane in his hand. The Count took them with a quick gesture and passed on, followed by his friend, who raised his eyebrows a little with a look of regret, as his only answer to the last words. These words had been heard by the valet also, and the raising of the eyebrows was not unmarked. And Maître Jérôme, understanding the whole train of the argument, as well as if he had heard every syllable, commented upon what he considered his lord's imbecility by a shrug of the shoulders in which his head almost utterly disappeared. In the meantime, the young Count and his friend passed up the little avenue to the postern gate, opened it, and entered the town of Marseille, and then, by a short and narrow street, which was at that moment all in shadow, entered the market square, at which they arrived, by the shorter path they pursued, long before the officers who were about to read the proclamation. A large number of persons were collected in the square, and it was evident that by this time the whole place was in a state of great excitement. The chevalier was in some fear of the effect of the coming scene upon his friend, and as they entered the market-place he stopped him, laying his hand upon his arm, and saying, "'Monsieur, you are a good deal heated. Pause for one moment, and think of what you are about. For the sake of yourself and of your country, if not for mine, neither say nor do anything rashly.' The Count turned towards him with a calm and gentle smile, and grasped his hand. "'Thank you, Louis,' he said. "'Thank you, though your caution, believe me, is unnecessary. 
you will see that I act as calmly and as reasonably, that I speak as quietly and as peacefully as the most earnest Catholic could desire. Heaven forbid, he added, that I should say one word or make one allusion to anything that could farther excite the passions of the people than they are likely to be excited already. Civil strife, Louis, is the most awful of all things, so long as it lasts, and seldom, very seldom, if ever, obtains the end for which it first commenced. But even if I did not think so, he added in a lower voice, I know that the Protestants of France have no power to struggle with the force of the crown. Unless, and his voice fell almost to a whisper, unless the crown force upon them the energetic vigour of despair. The two had paused while they thus spoke, and while they heard the murmuring sounds of the people coming up the hill from the right hand, the noise of several persons running could be distinguished from the other side, and turning round towards the postern, the Count saw that, thanks to the care and foresight of Maître Jérôme, a great number of his domestics and attendants were coming up at full speed to join them, so that when he again advanced he was accompanied by ten or twelve persons ready to obey, without hesitation or difficulty, the slightest command that he should give. As there was no telling the turn which events might take, he was not sorry that it should be so, and as he now advanced towards the centre of the square, the sight of his liveries instantly attracted the attention of the people, and he was recognised with joyful exclamations of, "'The Count! The Count!' Gladness was in every face as he approached, for the minds of the populace were in that state of anxious hesitation, in which the presence and directions of any one to whom they are accustomed to look up is an absolute blessing. Taking off his hat and bowing repeatedly to every one around him, speaking to many and recognising every one with whom he was personally acquainted, with a frank and good-humoured smile, the Count advanced through the people, who gathered upon his path as he proceeded, till he reached the top of the hill, and obtained a clear view of what was passing below. Had not one known the painful and angry feelings which were then excited, it would have been a pleasant and a cheerful scene. The sun had by this time got sufficiently round to the westward to throw long shadows from the irregular gable-ended houses, more than half-way across the wide open road that conducted from the valley to the top of the hill. The perspective, too, was strongly marked by the lines of the buildings. The other side of the road was in bright light. There was a beautiful prospect of hill and dale seen out beyond the town, numerous booths and stalls kept by peasant women with bright dresses and snowy caps, checkered the whole extent, and up the centre of the street, approaching slowly, were the officers of the district, with a small party of military, followed on either side by a much more considerable number of the lower order of townspeople and peasantry. Such was the scene upon which the eyes of the Count de Morsay fell, and it must be admitted that when he saw the military his heart beat with considerable feelings of indignation, for we must remember that in towns like that which was under his rule the feudal customs still existed to a very great extent. It was still called his town of Morseille. The king indeed ruled. The laws of the land were administered in the king's name, but the custody, defence and government of the town of Morseille was absolutely in the hands of the count or of the persons to whom he delegated his power during his absence. It was regularly, in fact, garrisoned in his name, and there were many instances, scarcely twenty years before, in which the garrisons of such towns had resisted in arms the royal authority, and if not held to be fully justified, at all events had passed without punishment, because they were acting under the orders of him 
in whose name they were levied. The attempt, therefore, of any body of the king's troops to penetrate into the count's town of Marseilles, without his having been formally deprived of the command thereof, seemed to him one of the most outrageous violations of his privileges which it was possible to imagine. And his heart consequently beat, as we have said, with feelings of high indignation. He suppressed them, however, with the calm determination of doing what was right, and turned his gaze upon the people who surrounded him, in order to ascertain, as far as possible, by what feelings they were affected. His own attendants had congregated immediately behind him. On his right hand stood his friend the Chevalier, on his left about half a step behind, so as to be near the Count, but not to appear obtrusive, was the personage of considerable importance in the little town of Marseilles, though he exercised a handicraft employment and worked daily with his own hands, even while he directed others. This was Paul Verlet, the principal blacksmith of the place. He was at this time a man of about fifty years of age, tall and Herculean in all his proportions. The small head, the broad muscular chest and shoulders, the brawny arms, the immense thick hands, the thin flanks and the stout legs and thighs all bespoke extraordinary strength. He was very dark in complexion, with short-cut curly black hair, grizzled with grey, and the features of his face, though short, and by no means handsome, had a good and a frank expression, but at all times somewhat stern. At the present moment his brow was more contracted than usual, not that there was any other particular mark of very strongly excited passions upon his countenance, and the attitude he assumed was one of calm and reposing strength, resting with his right hand, supported by one of the common quarter-staffs of the country, a full inch and a half thick, much in the same position which he frequently assumed when, pausing in his toil, he talked with his workmen, leaving the sledgehammer that usually descended with such awful strength to support the hand which wielded it at other times like a feather. Behind him again was a great multitude of the town's people of different classes, though the mayor and the municipal officers had thought fit to absent themselves carefully from the scene of probable strife but the eyes of the Count fell, as we have said, upon Paul Verlet, and knowing him to be a man both highly respected in his own class and of considerable wealth and importance in the city, he addressed him in the first instance, saying, "'Good morrow, Verlet. It is long since I have seen you all. What is all this about?' "'You don't forget us, Count Albert, even when you are away,' replied the blacksmith, with his brow unbending. "'We know that very well, and have proofs of it, too,' when anything good is to be done, but this seems to me to be a bad business. We hear that the king has suppressed the chamber of the edict, which was our greatest safeguard, and now my boy tells me, for I sent him down to see when they first came to the bottom of the hill, that this is a proclamation forbidding us from holding synods, and, be you sure, that the time is not far distant when they will try to stop us altogether from worshipping God in our own way. What think you, my lord, he said, in a lower tone, were it not better to show them at once that they cannot go on? And his look spoke much more than even his words. No, Verlet, replied the Count, no, by no means. You see the people are in tumult below, evidently. Any unadvised and illegal resistance to the royal authority will immediately call upon us harsh measures, and be made the pretext by any bad advisers who may surround the king for irritating his royal mind against us. 
let us hear what the proclamation really is, even should it be harsh and unjust, which from the king's merciful nature we will hope is not the case. Let us listen to it calmly and peaceably, and after having considered well and taken the advice and opinion of wise and experienced men, let us then make what representations to the king we may think fit, and petition him in his clemency to do us right. Clemency, said the blacksmith, however, my lord, you know better than I, but I hope they will not say anything to make our blood boil, that's all. Even if they should, replied the count, we must prevent it from boiling over. Verlet, I rely upon you, as one of the most sensible men of the place, not only to restrain yourself, but to aid me in restraining others. The king has every right to send his own officers to make his will known to his people. But the dragoons, said Verlet, fixing his eyes upon the soldiers, what business have they here? Why, they might, Count Albert. The count stopped him. They are yet without the real bounds of the town, Verlet, he said, and they do not enter into it. Send someone you can trust for the mayor with all speed. Unhook the gates from the bars that keep them back. Place a couple of men behind each. I will prevent the military from entering into the town. But I trust to you and the other men of good sense who surround me to guard the king's officers and the king's authority from any insult and to suffer the proclamation of his will to take place in the marketplace without any opposition or tumult whatsoever. "'I will do my best, Count,' replied the blacksmith, "'for I am sure you are a true friend to us, "'and we may well trust in you.' "'The crowd from below had in the meantime advanced steadily up the hill, "'surrounding the officers of the crown and the soldiery, "'and by this time the whole mass was within a hundred and fifty yards "'of the spot where the Count and his companions stood. "'Their progress had been without violence, indeed, "'but not without hootings and outcry.' which seemed greatly to annoy the officer in command of the soldiers, he having been accustomed alone to the court of the Grand Monarch, and to the scenes in the neighbourhood of the capital, where the people might well be said to lick the dust beneath the feet of their pageant-loving king. It seemed then something so strange and monstrous to his ears, that any expression of the royal will should be received otherwise than with the most deep and devoted submission, that he was more than once tempted to turn and charge the multitude. A prudent consideration, however, of the numbers by which he was surrounded, and the scantiness of his own band, overcame all such purposes, and though foaming with indignation, he continued to advance, without noticing the shouts that assailed him, and playing with the manifold ribbons and pieces of silk that decorated his buff coat and his sword-knot, to conceal his vexation and annoyance. "'Who have we here at the head of them?' demanded the Count, turning to the Chevalier. "'His face is not unknown to me.' "'As far as I can see,' replied his companion, "'it is young Ericor, the nephew of Letellier's. "'Do you not remember? "'As brave as a lion, but moreover a young coxcomb, "'who thinks that he can do everything "'and that nothing can be done without him. "'As stupid as an owl, too. "'I wonder you do not recollect his getting great credit "'for taking the little fort of the Bec de Loire "'by a sheer act of stupidity, "'getting himself and his party entangled between the two forts, and while the Lamay was advancing to extricate him, forced his way in, from not knowing what else to do. "'I remember, I remember,' said the Count, with a smile. "'He was well rewarded for his fortunate mistake. "'But what does he hear, I wonder? "'I thought he never quitted the precincts of Versailles, "'but to follow the King to the camp.' "'He is the worst person who could have been sent upon this errand,' replied the Chevalier, "'for he is certain to make mischief wherever he goes.' 
He has attached himself much to the Rouvres, however, of late, and I suppose Letellier has given him some post about the new governor, in order that his rule may not be the most tranquil in the world. While they were speaking, the eyes of the people who were coming up the hill fell upon the group that had assembled just in front of the gates, with the Count, his friend, and his servants in the foreground, and immediately a loud shout made itself heard, of, "'The Count! The Count! Long live the Count!' followed by various other exclamations such as, "'He will protect us! He will see justice done us! Long live our own good Count!' The moment that the Count's name was thus loudly pronounced, the young officer, turning to those who followed, gave some orders in a low voice, and then, spurring on his horse through the crowd, rode directly up to the Count de Mosset, who, as he saw him approaching, turned to the chevalier, saying, "'You bear witness, Louis, that I deal with this matter as moderately and loyally as may be.' "'I trust, for the sake of all,' said the chevalier, "'that you will. You know, Albert, that I do not care two straws for one religion more than the other, and I think that a man can serve God singing the psalms of Clement Marot as well, or perhaps better than if he sung them in Latin, without perhaps understanding them.' but for heaven's sake keep peace in the inside of the country at all events. But here comes our young dragoon. As he spoke, the young officer rode up with a good deal of irritation evident in his countenance. He seemed to be three or four and twenty years of age, of a complexion extremely fair, and with a countenance sufficiently unmeaning, though all the features were good. He bowed familiarly to the chevalier, and more distantly to the Count de Mosseuil, but addressed himself at once to the latter. "'I have the honour," he said, "'I presume of speaking to the Count of Mosay, "'and I must say that I hope he will give me his aid "'in causing proclamation of the King's will "'amongst these mutinous and rebellious people "'of the town of Mosay. "'My friend the Chevalier here tells me,' replied the Count, "'that I have the honour of seeing Monsieur de Ericot.' "'The Marquis Auguste de Ericot,' interrupted the young officer. "'Well, sir, well,' said the Count, somewhat impatiently, "'I stand corrected. "'The Marquis Auguste de Ericot, "'and I am very happy to have the honour of seeing him, "'and also to inform him that I will myself ensure "'that the King's will is, as he said, "'proclaimed in my town of Marseille "'by the proper officers, "'taking care to accompany them into the town myself for that purpose, "'although I cannot but defend my poor townsmen "'from the accusation of being mutinous and rebellious subjects.' "'nothing being further from the thoughts of any one here present "'than mutiny or rebellion. "'Do you not hear the cries and shouts?' cried the young officer. "'Do you not see the threatening aspect of the people?' "'I hear some shouts, certainly,' answered the Count, "'as if something had given offence or displeasure. "'But what it is I do not know. "'I trust and hope that it is nothing in any proclamation of the King's. "'And if I should find it to be so, when I hear the proclamation read,' I shall take every means to put an end to such demonstrations of disappointment or grief at once. We have always the means of approaching the royal ear, and I feel sure that there will be no occasion for clamour or outcry in order to obtain justice at the hands of our most gracious and wise monarch. But allow me to observe, Monsieur le Marquis, he continued somewhat more quickly, your dragoons are approaching rather too near the gates of Marseille. "'You do not intend, I presume, sir,' said the young officer sharply, "'to refuse an entrance to the officers of the king, "'charged with a proclamation from his majesty.' "'Not to the king's proper civil officers,' replied the Count, "'keeping his eye, while he spoke, warily fixed upon the dragoons. 
but most assuredly I do intend to refuse admittance to any body of military whatsoever, great or small, while I retain the posts with which His Majesty has entrusted me of governor to this place. There was a pause for a single instant, and the young officer turned his head, without replying, towards the soldiers, on whom the Count's eye also was still fixed. There was something, however, suspicious in their movements. They had now reached the brow of the hill, and were within twenty yards of the gate. They formed into a double file as they came up in front of the civil officers, and the headman of each file was seen passing a word to those behind him. At the moment their officer turned his head towards them, they began to move forward in quicker time, and in a moment more would have passed the gates, but at that instant the clear full voice of the Count de Mosseuil was heard exclaiming in a tone that rose above all the rest of the sounds, "'Close the gates!' and the two ponderous masses of wood, which had not been shut for many years, swung forward, grating on their hinges, and at once barred all entrance into the town. "'What is the meaning of this, Monsieur de Hericourt?' continued the Count. "'Your men deserve a severe reprimand, sir, for attempting to enter the town without my permission or your orders.' The young man turned very red, but he was not ready with a reply, and the Chevalier, willing as far as possible to prevent any unpleasant consequences, and yet not to lose a jest, exclaimed, "'I suppose the Marquis took it for the Bec de Loire, but he is mistaken, you see.' "'He might have found it a trap for a goose, if not a goose's bill,' said a loud voice from behind. But the Marquis either did not or would not hear anything but the pleasant part of the illusion, and bowing to the Chevalier with a smile, he said, "'Oh, you are too good, Monsieur le Chevalier. The affair you mention was but a trifle, far more owing to the courage of my men than to any skill on my part. But in the present instance I must say, Count,' he added, turning towards the other, that the king's officers must be admitted to make proclamations in the town of Mosseille. "'The king's civil officers shall, sir,' replied the Count, "'as I informed you before, but no soldiers on any pretense whatsoever. However, sir,' he continued, seeing that the young officer, mustering up a superabundant degree of energy, "'I think it will be much the best plan for you to do me the honour of reposing yourself with any two or three of your attendants you may think fit,' at my poor chateau here, without the walls, while your troopers can refresh themselves at the little auberge at the foot of the hill. My friend the Chevalier here will do the honours of my house till I return, and I will accompany the officers charged with the proclamation, and see that they meet with no obstruction in the fulfilment of their duty. I do not know that I am justified, said the young officer, hesitating, in not insisting upon seeing the proclamation made myself. "'I am afraid there will be no use of insisting,' replied the Count, "'and, depend upon it, sir, you will serve the King better "'by suffering the proclamation to be made quietly "'than even by risking a disturbance "'by protracting unnecessarily an irritating discussion. "'I wish to treat you with all respect "'and with the distinction due to your high merit. "'Father, I have nothing to say, "'but that I am Governor of Monsey, "'and as such undertake to see the King's proclamation "'duly made within the walls.' The hesitation of the young dragoon was only increased by the cool and determined tone of the Count. Murmurs were rising amongst the people round, and the voice of Paul Verlet was heard muttering, "'He had better decide quickly, or we shall not be able to keep the good men quiet.' The Marquis heard the words, and instantly began to bristle up, to fix himself more firmly in the saddle, and put his hand towards the hilt of his sword. 
but the chevalier advanced close to his side and spoke to him for a moment or two in a low voice. Nothing was heard of their conversation, even by the Count de Mousseux, but the words, good wine, pleasant evening, laugh over the whole affair. But at length the young courtier bowed his head to the Count, saying, well then, sir, I repose the trust in you, knowing you to be a man of such high honour that you would not undertake what you could not perform, nor fail to execute punctually that which you had undertaken. I will do myself the honour of waiting your return with the chevalier at your chateau. After some further words of civility on both parts, the young officer dismounted and threw his rein to a page, and then formally placing the civil officers under the care and protection of the Count de Mosset, he gave orders to his dragoons to bend their steps down the hill, and refresh themselves at the auberge below, while he, bowing again to the Count, took his way with the chevalier and a single attendant, along the esplanade which led to the gates of the chateau without the walls. The civil officers, who had certainly been somewhat maltreated as they came up the hill, seemed not a little unwilling to see the dragoons depart, and a loud shout, mingled of triumph and scorn, with which the people treated the soldiers as they turned to march down the hill, certainly did not at all tend to comfort or reassure the poor huissiers, greffiers, and other officers. The shout caused the young marquis, who had proceeded twenty or thirty steps upon his way, to stop short and turn round, imagining that some new collision had taken place between the townspeople and the rest. But seeing that all was quiet, he walked on again the moment after, and the Count, causing the civil officers to be surrounded by his own attendants, ordered the wicket to be opened, and led the way in, calling to Valet to accompany him, and urging upon him the necessity of preserving peace and order, let the nature of the proclamation be what it might. "'I have given you my promise, Count,' replied the blacksmith, "'to do my best, and I won't fail, but I won't answer for myself or others on any other occasion.' "'We are only speaking of the present,' replied the Count, "'for other occasions, other measures, as the case may be. "'But at present everything requires us to submit without any opposition. "'Where can this cowardly mayor be,' he said, "'that he does not choose to show himself in a matter like this? "'But the proclamation must be made without him if he do not appear.' "'They had by this time advanced into the midst of the great square, "'and the Count signified to the officer charged with the proclamation,' that it had better be made at once, but for some moments what he suggested could not be accomplished from the pressure of the people, the crowd amounting by this time to many hundred persons. The Count, his attendants and Verlet, however, contrived with some difficulty to clear a little space around, the first by entreaties and expostulations, and the blacksmith by sundry thrusts of his strong quarter-staff and menaces, with an arm which few of those there present seemed inclined to encounter. The Count then took off his hat, and the officer began to read the proclamation, which was long and wordy, but which, like many another act of the Crown then taking place from day to day, had a direct tendency to deprive the Protestants of France of the privileges which had been secured to them by Henry the Fourth. Amongst other galling and unjust decrees here announced to the people was one which, after stating that many persons of the religion affecting the title of Reformed, being ill-disposed towards the king's government, were selling their landed property with the view of emigrating to other lands, went on to declare that to give warning to all purchasers that if heretical persons effecting such sales did quit the country 
within one year after having sold their property, the whole would be considered as confiscated to the state, and that purchasers would receive no indemnity. When this part of the proclamation was read, the eyes of the sturdy blacksmith turned upon the Count, who, by a gesture of the hand, endeavoured to suppress all signs of disapprobation amongst the multitude. It was in vain, however, for a loud shout of indignation burst forth from them, which was followed by another, when the proclamation went on to declare that the mayors of towns professing the Protestant faith should be deprived of the rank of nobles, which had been formally granted to them. The proclamation then proceeded with various other notices of the same kind, and the indignation of the people was loud and unrestrained. The presence of the Count, however, and the exertions of Verlet, and several influential people, who were opposed to a rash collision with the authority of the King, prevented any act of violence from being committed, and when the whole ceremony was complete, the officers were led back to the gates by the Count, who gave orders that they should be conducted in safety, beyond the precincts of the place, by his own attendants. After returning into the great square and holding a momentary conversation with some of the principal persons present, he returned by the postern to his own abode, where he found his friend and the young officer, apparently forgetting altogether the unpleasant events of the morning, and laughing and talking gaily over indifferent subjects. "'I have the pleasure of informing you, Monsieur de Ericot,' said the Count when he appeared, "'that the proclamation has been made without interruption, "'and that the King's officers have been conducted out of the town in safety. "'We have, therefore, nothing more of an unpleasant kind to discuss, "'and I trust that you will take some refreshment.' "'Wine and various sorts of meats, which were considered as delicacies in those days, "'were brought and set before the young courtier, who did justice to all,' declaring that he had never in his life tasted anything more exquisite than the produce of the Count's cellars. He even ventured to praise the dishes, though he insinuated, much to the indignation of the cook, to whom it was repeated by an attendant, that there was a shade too much of tarragon in one of the ragouts, and that if a matelot had been five minutes more cooked, the fish would have been tenderer, and the flavour more decided. The Count smiled and apologised for the error, reminding him that the poor rustics in the country could not boast the skill and delicacy, or even perhaps the nicety of natural taste, of the artist of the capital. He then turned the conversation to matters of some greater importance, and inquired when they were to expect the presence of the Duc de Rouvray in the province. The young Marquis opened his eyes at the question, as if he looked upon it as a sign of the most utter and perfect ignorance and rusticity that could be conceived. "'Is it possible, Monsieur le Comte,' he said, "'that you, so high in the service of the King, "'and so highly esteemed, as I may add, at court, "'are not aware that the Duke arrived at Poitiers nearly five days ago? "'I had the honour of accompanying him thither, "'and he has himself been within the last three days "'as near as seven leagues to the very place where we are now sitting.' "'You must remember, my good sir,' replied the Count, as some excuse for my ignorance, that I received His Majesty's gracious permission to return hither, upon some important affairs direct from the army, without visiting the court, and that I only arrived late last night. Pray, when you return to Monsieur Louvray, present my compliments to him, and tell him that I shall do myself the honour of waiting upon him, to congratulate him and the Duchess upon their safe arrival in the province, without any delay." "'Wait till they are fully established at Poitiers,' replied the young officer. 
They are now upon a little tour through the province, not choosing to stay at Poitiers yet, he added, sinking his voice into a low and confidential tone, because their household is not in complete order. None of the new liveries are made. The guard of the governor is not yet organized. Two cooks and three servers have not arrived from Paris. Nothing is in order, in short. A week, I trust, we shall be more complete, and then, indeed, I do not think that the household of any governor in the kingdom will exceed in taste, if not in splendour, that of the Duc de Rouvray. Which is, I presume, said the Chevalier, under the direction and superintendence of the refined and celebrated good taste of the Marquis Auguste de Hericourt. Why, to say truth, replied the young nobleman, my excellent friend de Rouvray has some confidence in my judgment of such things, I may say, indeed, has implicit faith therein, as he has given all that department over to me for the time, beseeching me to undertake it, and, of course, I cannot disappoint him. Of course not, of course not, replied the chevalier, and in such conversation passed on some time, the worthy Marquis de Ericourt swallowed up in himself, not at all perceiving a certain degree of impatience in the Count de Merseille, which might have afforded any other man a hint to take his departure. He lingered over his wine, he lingered over his dessert, he perambulated the gardens, he criticised the various arrangements of the chateau with that minute attention to nothings which is the most insufferable of all things when obtruded upon the mind bent upon matters of deep importance. It was thus fully five o'clock in the afternoon before he took his departure, and the Count forced himself to perform every act of civility by him to the last moment. As soon as he was gone, however, the young nobleman turned quickly to his friend, saying, "'I thought that contemptible piece of emptiness would never depart. And, of course, Louis, after what has taken place this morning, it is absolutely necessary for me to consult with some of my friends of the same creed as myself. I will not in any degree involve you in these matters, as the very fact of your knowing any of our proceedings might hereafter be detrimental to you, and I only make this excuse because I owe it to the long friendship between us,' not to withhold any part of my confidence from you, except out of consideration for yourself. Act as you think fit, my dear Albert, replied his friend, but only act with moderation. If you want my advice on any occasion, ask it, without minding whether you compromise me or not. I am quite sure that I am much too bad a Catholic to sacrifice my friend's secrets either to Pelisson, La Chaise, or Le Tellier. If I am not mistaken, the devil himself will make the fourth at their card-table some day, and perhaps Louvois will stand by and bet. Oh, I entertain no fear of your betraying me, answered the Count with a smile, but I should entertain great fear of embroiling you with the court. Only take care not to embroil yourself, replied the Chevalier. I am sure I wish there were no such things as sects in the world. If you could but take a glance at the state of England, which is split into more sets than it contains cities, I am sure you would be of Turenne's opinion, and come into the bosom of the Mother Church, if it were but for the sake of getting rid of such confusion. Nay, shake not your wise head. If the truth be told, you are a Protestant because you were bred so in your youth, and one half of the world has no other motive either for its religion or its politics. But get thee gone, Albert, get thee gone. Consult with your wise friends and come back more Huguenotized than ever. The Count would have made some further apologies for leaving him, but his friend would not hear them, and sending for his horse, Albert de Monsay, 
took his departure from his chateau, forbidding any of his attendants to follow him. End of chapter 2